0: This is a Rooster Teeth production. December 11th, 1994. Philippine Airlines Flight 434, a Boeing 747 with 293 people on board, is on its way to Tokyo, Japan after departing Manila, Philippines and making a stop in Cebu, the Philippines. At cruising altitude, still only part of the way through the journey, a bomb goes off in the passenger cabin. One passenger is killed instantly and 10 others injured in the initial explosion. The plane violently banks to the right, but the autopilot begins compensating for it. The pilots wrestle with the damaged plane that is no longer properly responding to their controls. They declare an emergency and plan to divert to Naha in Okinawa. The pilots realize that they cannot turn the plane with the autopilot and worry that if they disable it, the plane will quickly become uncontrollable. What happened to Philippine 434? Are they able to make it to Okinawa safely? Were the responsible parties caught? Find out on this episode of Black Box Down. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Black Box Down. It's Gus and Chris. Hello, Chris. Hello. We're back. This one sounds good. It's interesting. It, this one kind of incorporates lots of things that we've talked about in the past. And it is, I, I know typically in the past I've said I don't like covering acts of terrorism when it comes to this podcast, just because that's not like a breakdown in the aviation process. Mm-hmm. a security issue, right? Totally separate thing. But this one is so far reaching and has so many implications that it was... I think it's it's a really uh, interesting one to listen to. We can we can learn a lot digging into this one.
1: Yeah, I mean, just the on concept like the autopilot keeping the plane stable, but also limiting what you're able to do with it is super interesting.
0: Yeah, um, yeah, <laughs> and <then> we've <laughs> talked about issues like this before, where after an accident or you know something goes wrong in the air, the autopilot's compensating for something that the pilots don't anticipate, and then when they turn it off, you know everything yeah. falls apart very quickly. And that's uh, here, the pilots had the presence of mind to kind of keep it on and be like, all right, let's evaluate what's yeah. going on. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, let's, let's, let's be ahead of the issue and let's anticipate what could potentially happen and make a plan for it, which, you know, is, is really smart. But of course, before we get into all of that, quick reminder to everyone, give us a follow on social media at BlackBoxDownPod for pictures, videos, things that don't get conveyed in an audio format. You can get more, a little more, a little, little peek in more information uh, on social media. Mm-hmm. let's go, let's go and get into this one. We've been, we've been on, we've had a, like a small break with our supplemental episodes. So I'm, I'm eager to get back into it, Chris. Yeah. <laughs> so this flight, this Boeing 747 was captained by Eduardo Ed Reyes, who was a 58 year old veteran pilot who had previously served with the Philippine Air Force back from 1958 to 1964. And he'd actually flown with Philippine Airlines since 1964. So he'd been, you know, flying for the airline for 30 years at this point. Which maybe plays into what we talked about, mm-hmm. like being ahead of the plane and thinking ahead, yeah. and, you know, make, making sure that you know the ramifications of what you're going to do. Uh, the first officer was Jamie Herrera, who was a 46-year-old, also a veteran pilot. He'd been with Philippine Airlines since 1970. So he'd been with the airline for 24 years. Again, another very seasoned pilot. And, of course, they had a flight engineer in, in this particular flight. Wow. Oh. Dexter Comendador who was also a Philippine Air Force pilot from 83 to 92 and then he'd been with Philippine Airlines since 1992 so he'd been with the airline for 2 years. So not as not as experienced.
1: And this was been on the tail end of having an engineer, right?
0: Yeah yeah, plus also this was a it wasn't an old plane but it was a mm-hmm. slightly older 747. So being slightly older in 1994 means it was made back in the time when there would have been three pilots or three yeah. people in the cockpit so uh yeah you're, you're right this is in that phase where newer planes being made at this time did not require three but there were still some older planes being flown that did need three people okay so yeah this it, it's, it's an interesting transition period that they just happen to be in at this point point. and this flight departed from manila at 5:35 a.m so It's a little confusing, but essentially it was like a Manila to Tokyo flight, but it stopped at Cebu. So it takes off from Manila. And if I'm understanding the geography correctly, it flies southeast to Cebu and then north up to uh, Tokyo. Planes do that sometimes, you know. They got to make a stop somewhere, people getting on. And And of course, when they stop in Cebu, some people get off the plane, some people get on the plane.
1: Hmm.
0: My my autocorrect does not know what I'm trying to type with Cebu. (laughs) C-E-B-U. C-E-B-U. And I, yeah. I, I'm taking a guess. I think that's how you say it. Uh, hopefully, I'm correct. If you're, uh, if you live in the Philippines or you speak Tagalog, uh, please let us know on social media. <laughs> so, unsurprisingly, I'm, I'm gonna. I'll give a, a quick spoiler here: a terrorist boarded the flight uh-huh. in Manila from uh, Ninoy Aquino International Airport, which is formerly uh, Manila International Airport, and you know boarded this flight and then got off the plane in Cebu. Oh, so oh had so left the correct left something on the plane. Mm-hmm. And this this terrorist used the fake Italian name Armaldo Forlani, which was uh an incorrect spelling of of an Italian politician's name, Arnaldo Forlani. huh so there was a, a you know fake fake credentials fake passport was used uh, to get on this flight because the the actual the person's actual name was uh Ramzi Ahmed Youssef. and this was a wanted person this was, which is why he's using fake credentials to try oh. to uh, get on you know on the plane, and we're going to we're going to talk about that in a, in a bit, okay. So, like I said, he got on the plane in Manila and then got off the plane in Cebu. But, like you said, he left something behind on the plane once the plane was airborne on the first leg from Manila to Cebu. Ramzi Youssef went to the lavatory with his toiletry bag and he had hidden a bunch of um, disassembled bomb parts in his toiletry bag,
1: oh so, like he disassembled it in his so that it would, like get through security
0: easier That's- right hmm. and he he had hidden some components in everyday like everyday containers in his toiletry bag and he hid some of the more suspicious components in the heels of his shoe like uh, he'd hid batteries wiring and a spark source oh and he put them in the heel of his shoe because it's at a level where metal detectors at the time could not detect oh which is why to this day in some airports they have you take your shoes off right so he put some of the more suspicious items in the heel of his shoe metal detector couldn't detect it and then some of the other items in Like I said, more mundane containers. And then his timer was a Casio digital watch. The explosive that was used was a stabilized liquid nitroglycerin, which he had put into a bottle of contact lens fluid. Oh, wow. Which is maybe a a precursor to why you can't take liquids through airport checkpoints. You know, you wonder lots of times, like, why can't I take liquids through? Why do I have to take my shoes off? A lot of it, it wasn't explicitly because of this, but this is one of the incidents that led to a lot of those rules being made.
1: You ruined it for everyone.
0: Yeah. Now now you got (laughs) to, you fly somewhere, you got to buy your contact lens solution when you get there now. And uh, like, like we said, he was, he himself was an accomplished forger. So he had made his counterfeit Italian passport with this fake identity. And so, you know, he goes to the lavatory, puts all of the stuff together, you know, finalizes building the bomb, comes out and then changes seats. He, you know, he moves from his original seat. This, this flight was not very full. This leg of the flight was not very full. So he changes seats from the seat he was originally in to a different seat, 26K. Because, you know, he asked the flight attendant if he can move and flight attendant says, yeah. And he, you know, makes up a story about how there's a better view out of that seat. And that's why he wants mm. to move there. But in reality, he knows that 26K on the 747 is directly above the fuel tanks, the center fuel tanks in the plane.
1: So he moved to be by the fuel.
0: Yeah, to, that way, hoping that the bomb would, Ignite the fuel and cause, you know, the plane to, to explode. What a turd. <laughs> Sorry. There's a, this person incredibly, uh, I, I will say incredibly intelligent. You know, he had a very thorough understanding of how to make bombs. You know, he could make these counterfeit passports. He, you know, yeah. had quite, he, his, his father was an engineer. So he'd been exposed to, you know, engineering principles from an early age, very, detail-oriented person as yeah, you can tell I mean, you can yeah you could tell just by this uh, so mm-hmm. far luckily however on this specific plane the seats weren't aligned exactly how he thought they were so 26k was not directly over the fuel tanks the fuel tanks were actually two rows behind where he said yeah if you had been in seat 28 it would have been a different story but you know luckily for everyone on the plane his bomb missed the fuel tanks which is why, at the beginning, I said that you know the pilots you know are are able to continue trying to fly the plane. Yeah, yeah. So, so the I mean, yeah.
1: If he'd hit it, it would have just ignited all the fuel and just like right.
0: Everything. It would have been uncontrollable. Mm-hmm. And then after you know he planted that bomb in the in the life vest. Wait, so he like un, under the seat. He like just stuck right. it under the seat. Right. There's like a little bag down there with you know life vests. and they tell you that in you know the pre flight briefing that most people, the safety briefing that most people ignore. Lots of times that's where your life vest is. And there's a little pouch with a Velcro tab and he just opened up the Velcro, stuck it in there and closed it back up. Wow. And then after he, you know, planted the bomb in there, he then moved seats again to a different seat. And one of the flight attendants who was on this leg uh, noticed that he kept switching seats during the course of the flight, but she didn't think too much of it and, you know, didn't alert anybody about it, but it did stick out in her head. And I remember she also said that uh, she noticed that he didn't eat his breakfast. Just something that stuck on your head. I, mm. Like I said, this wasn't a super full flight. So, you know, anything a passenger does is going to stick out a little more to a flight yeah, attendant. Yeah,
1: certainly one who's like hopping around and
0: yeah. not eating breakfast. Not eating the breakfast. I, I mean, I get that. I, yeah, I would, yeah. You know, at 5.45, I might not eat the breakfast either, but I would tell him not to bring it to me, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I, wouldn't, I wouldn't let them bring it out and then not eat it. Most of the time, shopping for birthdays and other celebrations is fun. Uh, but when it comes to shopping for those closest to me, it's such a struggle to find a meaningful gift that they'll actually love. Luckily, Aura frames are a great, thoughtful option for any gift-giving occasion. Each Aura frame is thoughtfully designed to fit any decor style with premium touches like stone-inspired textures, hand speckle finishes, and classic matting. Just connect it to Wi-Fi, use the free Aura app to add unlimited pics and videos from anywhere in the world with no fees ever. Uh, I've got uh, my frame right here. It's on my desk right next to me. It's so easy to set up. just takes a couple minutes. And I don't know how you deal with photos on your phone, but most of the time they just sit there. So it's really nice to actually have a frame where you can easily just send photos to it from your phone and just have them pop up. And it's I don't know, it's really nice. It's really easy to use. I think it's absolutely great. You can even preload frames with your favorite pics so they're ready to go upon delivery. With over 3 million users, it's safe to say that Aura Magic is very real. It's named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter, New York Mag, and Wired. Aura frames are the easiest gift for all occasions coming up on your calendar and the perfect addition to your home. So right now, listeners can take advantage of Aura's best-selling Carver Frames at their lowest price yet this time of year at $149. Just go to AuraFrames.com. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. And listeners can use code BLACKBOXDOWN to get free shipping at checkout. Don't miss out on the gift of a lifetime. Terms and conditions apply. Again, that's AuraFrames.com with code BLACKBOXDOWN. Do you know how much your subscriptions cost? Most Americans think they spend around $80 a month on subscriptions when the actual total is closer to $200. That's a huge difference. Uh, If you don't know exactly how much you're spending every month, hey, guess what? You need Rocket Money. Rocket Money, formerly known as Truebill, is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps you lower your bills all in one place. Over 80% of people have subscriptions they forgot about, like some streaming service you bought just to watch one show or that... Free trial that you never even used. You forgot to cancel. Rocket Money will quickly and easily identify your subscriptions for you. So you can stop paying for the ones you don't want. Simply find the subscription you don't want and you just press cancel. Rocket Money will cancel it for you. No more long hold times with customer service or tedious emails back and forth. Rocket Money makes counseling subscriptions just as easy as the click of a button. Over 3 million people have used Rocket Money, saving the average person up to $720 a year. I I feel like I'm on top of it. I know all of my subscriptions. Even I found a subscription that I'd forgotten about with Rocket Money and it's so easy you just click cancel and it takes care of it for you I normally dread having to do these things it was great one having it find something I forgot about and then two making it super easy to cancel it's unbelievable I think you should absolutely give it a shot so stop throwing your money away cancel unwanted subscriptions manage your expenses the easy way by going to rocketmoney.com slash black that's rocketmoney.com slash black rocketmoney.com slash black box down then you know when the plane landed in Cebu Yusuf and 25 other passengers left the plane, they, you know, the plane, that, that was where they were going. And then 256 passengers and a new cabin crew boarded the plane for the next leg, which was the trip to Tokyo. Many of the passengers were uh, Japanese citizens. I mean, some were co-workers who were traveling as part of a tour group. And, you know, there were some delays that delayed the departure of the flight from Cebu for 38 minutes. All of the passengers had boarded by 8.30 a.m., and at this point, the bomb had been planted about two hours earlier. And uh, when he used that Casio watch to set the timer, Ramzi Youssef uh-huh. had set it to go off four hours from the time he, he started the timer. So the bomb had been planted two hours earlier. So this was two hours to go until the bomb explodes. The flight was clear for takeoff at 8.38 a.m. with 24-year-old Haruki Ikigami, who was a Japanese industrial sewing machine maker, returning from a business trip to Cebu, sitting in that seat, 26K. Bad luck. Yeah, poor guy. At 11.43 a.m., about an hour and a half from Tokyo, the bomb exploded while Flight 434 was at cruising altitude on autopilot at 33,000 feet above the Japanese island of Minabi-Daito, which is near Okinawa and about 260 miles or 420 kilometers southwest of Tokyo. With the bomb exploded it claimed the life of ikigami whose body actually kind of dampened the blast oh the way that the bomb exploded the way it released its energy and the way it was placed the the forces went up and down like up through the seat and then down through the floor Uh uh-huh but because he was above it right his body absorbed a lot of that upper explosion force oh my goodness that must have been it's terrible yeah and and it created a, a hole in the floor of the plane where he was sitting as well investigators say that if the bomb had been placed sideways the explosive force would have punched out through the side of the plane through the wall and that would have caused a catastrophic decompression yeah so this didn't there was no like breach of like fuselage of the plane correct other than the floor but you know there was that's not the outer skin of the plane. yeah and i think the reason that the bomb was placed in this position to go up and down is Ramzi Youssef thought the fuel tank would have been directly below and was trying to ignite the fuel tank. Yeah. But like we said, in this specific layout of seats, the fuel tank was two rows behind. So in addition to Haruki Ikigami, 10 passengers in adjacent seats were also injured by the blast. And the hole in the floor was about a two square foot size hole leading to the cargo hold, two rows forward of the center fuel tank. Yeah. The, um, in, you know, watching interviews with the flight attendants who were working on this flight, you know, they say that, you know, the bomb goes off and everyone's not quite sure what happens. And that, and and, and actually people who were on the flight, spoiler, uh, they, they do manage to land the flight. Uh, most, almost everyone survives. The people who were on the flight say that after the bomb went off, it felt like there was extra pressure in the plane because since the fuselage didn't breach, there's all this extra pressure in there. Uh, like air pressure, so that was really a weird sensation oh, because the bomb went off
1: and there was like more, I guess, pressurized air. Pressurized, yeah. So like,
0: hmm, that's that's interesting. Yeah, it's it's a it's a strange thing to think about. Anyway, the uh, the flight attendants who were on this flight said, you know, their their first thing was to their first priority was to take care of any injured passengers and assess the damage and figure out what's going on. And so you know, they start moving people who were injured and they 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 said that they realized very quickly that you know uh, the pastor who was sitting in 26k was deceased but they still put the an oxygen mask on him and cover him with a blanket and act like they're attending to him just to to try to keep mm. people calm yeah 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 okay that's that's smart yeah it, i think it's really smart it's not something i would have thought about in the moment i assume <laughs> that's like training or like or someone who's like really on top of it in the moment thinks yeah. about that to take, you know, to try to keep people calm and keep people in their seats, which is also super important. Yeah, that, that's, that's really smart. I wouldn't think about that either. Yeah. And I'm, I'm sure it, it, it does help to calm the people. And also, you know, the people who are injured by the blast are the people immediately sitting around there. So they move them away. So everyone's a little further, you know, just begin immediately trying to attend to everyone's injuries. So, you know, I talked about this pressure that comes out from the bomb as it explodes. And this expansion of like air pressure from the explosion actually severed a number of control cables in the ceiling. Oh, the pressure. Right. Not the, pressure the explosion. A, the pressure. Well, an explosion is pressure. Yeah. Just lots of times you associate the like a fire or shrapnel uh-huh. or something else. But at its heart, an explosion is just pressure, like a rapid pressure wave that expands out.
1: Yeah, I guess so. I, I never <laughs> thought
0: about it that way, but yeah. So this pressure wave severs control cables in the ceiling. And these control cables that are in the ceiling are linked to the plane's right aileron. And the ailerons are like the little, uh, <laughs> I, I want to say they're the little flaps on the wing, but they're uh, not yeah, the flaps. Yeah, I was gonna say the little flappies. <laughs> yeah, but the flaps are a separate component. The ailerons go up or down to help the plane bank. Yeah. The flaps are used typically in landing and takeoff to allow the plane to maneuver at lower speeds. So the ailerons are what caused the plane to, to bank left and right to make, you can think of it like making turns. And it also severed some of the cables that connected the steering controls of both the captain and the first officer. So which is why I remember I mentioned that they were having trouble controlling it and you know making the plane turn. And the initial blast caused the aircraft to bank hard to the right, which was immediately corrected by the autopilot. The captain, Captain Reyes, asked the systems engineer, Dexter Comendador, Uh to survey the blast area and check for damage, while Reyes placed the mayday call. So, you know, he sends the flight engineer back to, you know, take a look. What happened in the cabin? What's going on? Give him a report. Again, we talk about, like, crew resource management, right? Mm -hmm. Like, using the resources that are available to you to, to figure out what's going on. And when Reyes, you know, places his mayday call, he requests landing at Naha Airport in Okinawa, which is... Closer. They were, they're trying to get on the ground as mm-hmm. quickly as possible. Due to the delay in takeoff from Cebu, the plane was not as far out to sea as anticipated. So, they, Naha was a lot closer than it would have been. If they hadn't been delayed, they would have been way further out in the sea at this point. Okay, well, that's good. And yeah. they, were, they were aware that it was a bomb, right? I don't know that they know 100% that it's a bomb, but I think they have a very strong suspicion that a okay. bomb went off. So, that's why they, yeah. they send the flight engineer back, like, hey, go verify what's going on. Let us know. So, Captain Reyes disengaged the autopilot despite fear that the aircraft would bank right again and the crew would lose control of the aircraft. Because of the pressing need to land quickly and attend to the injured and inspect the airplane for additional damage, Reyes instructed First Officer Jamie Herrera to take hold of his own controls and then Reyes deactivated the autopilot. They said that, you know, they were very scared at this point because mm-hmm. they knew that after the initial, impact, you know, explosion, the plane banked hard to the right and they didn't know, you know, once they what's the autopilot doing to compensate? Is there some kind of control problem? Yeah. Is, you know, when they disable it, is it going to immediately bank hard to the right again? So, um, you know, in, in interviews, you know, the pilots say that, you know, they, they counted down from three, like three, oh. two, one, disengage. Like both, you know, being very careful to fight the plane if they needed to. Wow. This is like a movie. <laughs> yeah. They, they, these guys, uh, you know, really, really did a great job. So they disabled the autopilot. However, the aircraft failed to respond to steering inputs from either controls mm, due to the damage severed. Cables. Yeah, right. I feel like I should also make a, a quick side note. They tried to steer the airplane with the autopilot on as well, like by moving the heading uh, mm-hmm. bug, uh, and it wasn't responding. So they couldn't turn it with the autopilot, which is why they disable it. Mm. And now they're trying to move their controls, and they're they they can not turn it with their controls. What a puzzle! <laughs> it's 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 so many things <laughs> going on. So they came up with a solution that we've talked about before that other pilots will do in this case when they can't steer the plane, they vary the engines' throttle settings.
1: I was wondering, is it just gonna like do it via controlling how where the plane goes, like unofficially?
0: <laughs> right. So it's like you uh, you use asymmetric thrust. So you know, if, for example, if you want to turn right, you increase the thrust on the left side engines and decrease the thrust on the the thrust on the right side engines, mm-hmm. and, and then vice turns, versa yeah. to turn left. Yeah. So they begin using the thralls to steer the plane, and we've covered incidents where this works out great, and we've also covered incidents where <laughs> yeah. this does not work out too great. So they use the thralls to steer, to steer the plane, and they're able to reduce their airspeed in order to control the radius of the turns to allow the plane to descend. So I don't know if you ever think about this. Even think about you, the, same, the same thing happens in a car. If you're going straight and you try to turn, the faster you're going, the wider your turn is, the yeah. more space you need where if you're going really slow, you can make a lot tighter of a turn. So they're trying to reduce their airspeed to kind of keep their turns tight. Huh. Uh, that way yeah. they're not making these huge arcing turns. Yeah, they are good. Yeah, they, they really are. <laughs> and also they have the presence of mind to dump fuel to lessen the strain on the landing gear. Oh man. Because again, that's another thing they're wondering, like, oh, they're having control problems. They They're not able to control the plane. When they try to drop the landing gear, is it even gonna go down? Oh. They don't. They don't know the extent of the damage to their controls, and it's not like they can just drop it and test it right now. That might cause another problem, so they got to wait until they're closer to to deal with that. So it's like, all right, let's just go ahead and start dumping fuel now in anticipation of you know needing this later. Yeah,
1: that is scary. It's it's scary the
0: idea of like just like let's just get rid of all our fuel. <laughs> like. Yeah. Well, th- yeah. I think <laughs> you know it's it's crazy. Uh, I think they requested to dump thirty six tons of fuel, which is. A lot, but you know they know that they're going to Okinawa. I think I don't know. Didn't, they didn't say anything in the report about them looking for a fuel leak, but I think you know they didn't notice any abnormal usage of mm-hmm. fuel, so they can probably figure there is no leak of fuel, so they, it's safe to dump it in order yeah. to uh, reduce their their weight. So when they contact Okinawa, the Japanese air traffic controller actually experienced difficulty trying to understand what Reyes was asking. I remember again we've talked about this before. Aviation English is the standard for communicating worldwide. So now you have a Philippine captain trying to speak to a Japanese air traffic controller in English. You know, presumably, not, English is neither of their first languages. And I don't know how busy Naha is, but they might not deal with a lot of international flights. They might be used to dealing with domestic Japanese flights. Yeah. So an American air traffic controller stepped in to actually help communicate with Reyes. There's an American air traffic controller who was at a U.S. military base on Okinawa. He took over for the uh, Japanese controller to help Reyes come in and land.
1: It's always cool when there's like emergencies and people are stepping up, you know? Yeah. Like it sounds like everyone in this story is like above and beyond. Like the flight attendants
0: are like on top of their stuff and like, yeah, everyone's doing (laughs) really good. Yeah, and I think the, you know, specifically with the flight attendants, I think a lot of, it's easy for a lot of passengers to slip into that false mindset of like, oh, they're just like, waiters you know in the sky they're yeah, just here not, to bring me yeah. my, my food and my drink But it's like they're really there for safety they're really there to take care of something goes wrong that's their job that's why they're there
1: yeah i mean they, they do so many little things that you don't think about right well and the thing is is like in a normal situation on a plane you don't ever see them do those things because they don't need to
0: <laughs> right yeah they'll do the safety demonstration which we talked about most people just ignore but there's there is a lot that's going on uh, behind the scenes that you may not be aware of and they're there if something goes wrong to take to make sure you're okay to take care of you. That American air traffic controller who was on that military base also helped coordinate a, an Air Force Learjet to fly towards this uh, Philippine Airlines flight to visually check for damage on the outer hull of the plane. And to help them verify that their landing gear was in place. Nice. This, see, the, like a movie. Everyone's like stepping <laughs> up. It's just cool. Lots of tension. and. All this was going on, the autopilot had actually also stopped responding to Reyes' commands, and the aircraft had flown past Okinawa. So that's when they begin, they're using that asymmetric thrust to, Uh you know, make this turn to get it back around towards uh, Okinawa. So Captain Eduardo Reyes and crew made an emergency landing at Okinawa's Naha Airport at 12.45 p.m., one hour after the bomb exploded. And passengers who were on this plane said that they were really nervous because when the captain first came on and, you know, told them that they were going to make an emergency landing in Okinawa, he told them that they would be landing in about 20 minutes. But it ended up taking an hour to land because they were having to figure out how to maneuver the plane, how to control it, how to dump fuel, and mm. get everything ready in order to land. So the passengers were were getting extremely nervous that they hadn't landed yet. And, yeah. you know, <laughs> it had been an hour. Well, good thing they didn't dump too much fuel. <laughs> yeah, true. So, the you know, the the captain, the the crew, ended up saving 272 passengers and 20 crew. The only fatality was... Uh, the man who was sitting on the seat, twenty six k. Wow! Did and,
1: and so the landing was just uneventful, super wow. smooth, no that problem. Is the, crazy, the, yeah.
0: The landing gear dropped just fine. They were able to to stop the plane, and they lined up good with just just the asymmetric thrust, which is crazy to yeah. me, Chris. That
1: just sounds like such a. Pers- it's like. It sounds like uh, I don't know. I'm imagining, you know, in uh, Interstellar when they're like the yeah. things are spinning. It's like do 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 do, and it's, <laughs> he's like, it's like I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna do it. It's like that's crazy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's 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 really
0: good. Because that's how they match that up in the movie, right? Like yeah, they're trying to the like match the, the rotational speed. Yeah. yeah. So I mean, hats off to them. What a yeah. you know, what an what an amazing accomplishment to save everyone on that plane. You know, the only fatality was unfortunately the person who had the bad luck of of sitting on the seat where Ramsey Youssef had planted that bomb. And even then, he did. He
1: still helped save everyone.
0: Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. That's definitely you know, a, like, a, a way to think about it. Yeah, his. It's it's really unfortunate, but the fact that he was sitting there could potentially have, have saved uh, everyone else. Yeah, it, it's really awful that. That that he died in this, but his body absorbed a lot of that impact, which potentially would have caused even more damage. So, you know, a lot of these things are really complicated, Mm -hmm. and this is no exception. The aircraft became a crime scene under Japanese law, (laughs) even though, (laughs) uh, you know, it's over international waters. Where does it, you know, the, the, the plane's bound for Japan, it lands in Japan. So the Japanese officials are the ones who investigate, and they find bomb fragments in and around the blast zone, as mm-hmm. well as the lower half of Ikigami's body. And this provided clues for the investigators. And this seems also kind of crazy to me. You know, Like, they look at all of the parts, you know, because it's, it's not just bomb fragments. It's also pieces of plane. They have to go through every fragment and identify it. Like, is this a piece of a plane or not? Wow. If it's not part yeah. of the plane, it's probably bomb. So it's like every single little piece, you know, trying to find everything and sort it all out to figure out what's what.
1: Different... Way to think of, the, of a puzzle. Yeah, for like sure. It, it's, it's, it's a literal puzzle and also a, you know, mental puzzle.
0: Yeah. So, you know, as they're separating all of these pieces, you know, they are able to figure out that the batteries used in the bomb are sold only in the Philippines. So they know Ooh. that this was assembled in the Philippines. So, you know, they work their way backwards to that. And I'm going to jump ahead a little bit here, uh, give a quick spoiler. U.S. prosecutors said the device was a Mark II PETN microbomb, which was constructed using Casio digital watches. And you may ask why U.S. prosecutors are involved in this. I just yeah, said that's what I was a about Jap- to ask. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, a Japanese investigation, a Japanese law. There's a Philippines airline, you know, I guess the United States military was involved with the air traffic controller side. This was a test. What? This bomb was a test for a larger plot called the Bojinka plot.
1: Oh, oh my, this, it just keeps getting crazier. When you said it was a test, I was like, a test for what? <laughs> yeah, it, the, the but terrorists were. They were testing were,
0: other, wow. Is, right, the feasibility of getting this bomb on the plane and how much damage it would do.
1: So they were just doing it just to test it? Yes. Oh my God. Let's just blow up a plane to see if we can later if blow it's up a
0: plane. It's worse than that, Chris. This test bomb on this Philippine Airlines plane used one-tenth of the explosive power (gasps) that was planned to be used on other planes. This plot, they wanted to use five different people, each with three bombs, and they were going to go out and place a total of 15 bombs on 15 different US-based airliners and have them all explode within six hours of each other.
1: Oh my god.
0: Potentially killing, they wanted to target about 4,000 people total. And then, you know, imagine the panic that would cause if on one day, 15 different planes blew up.
1: Yeah, that would be the entire, no plane would take off.
0: No. And on top of that, this, this plot, the Bojinka plot, also included plans to assassinate Pope John Paul II because he was about to visit the Philippines uh, the next month after this test. They're trying to kill the Pope? They were, yeah, they're going to try to kill the Pope and plant bombs inside several United and Delta Airlines flights out of Bangkok. Uh, like I said, targeting 15 planes in total, all within six hours of each other. Wow, this th- th- that is wild. On this plot, the Bojinka plot, Yusuf allegedly worked with his uncle, an Al-Qaeda member, uh, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed. And Yusuf conducted a trial run of the plan with this flight, Philippine Airlines Flight 434. So... Police uncovered this entire plot about a month after this, this bombing happened. They uncovered this on the night of January 6th into the early morning of January 7th, 1995. How? <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. So police <laughs> in Manila at the time were on heightened alert because the Pope was coming to visit. Yeah. And they were trying to make sure nothing was going to go wrong. Ramzi Youssef had brought an accomplice over with him to begin making these bombs for the, the, the Bojinka plot. And they were working out of uh, Ramzi Youssef's apartment in Manila. And while they were making the bombs, they made a mistake and with one of them. And it started releasing <laughs> like a, an acrid smoke into their apartment. So, you know, they try to cover it up. They open up the windows and, you know, they need to leave the apartment for a while to let it air out. And as they're doing that, like the doorman comes up to investigate because he sees smoke coming out of the building. And they tell him like, oh, no, it's just fireworks. It's no big deal. We're just airing out the apartment. And the doorman wants to go in and look for himself, but they don't let him. So, you know, Ramsey Youssef and his accomplice, they leave. But the doorman knows the Pope is coming. The police want to know if anything suspicious is happening. Wow. So first he calls the fire department. Uh By the time the fire department shows up, they're like, the smoke's gone. It's fine. No big deal. The fire department leaves. And then the police show up and the doorman lets them in to look (laughs) in the apartment. And the police go in and they look like, they realize like, oh my God, they're making bombs in here. And as they're doing that. They show up. Well, his accomplice shows up. Because Ramzi Youssef remembers that he left his, his laptop in the apartment and has incriminating information on it. So he sends his accomplice to go get it. The accomplice shows up while the police are there. They see him uh, and they, you know, they chase him. They try to shoot him but miss. But his accomplice trips and falls and they, uh, they oh. detain him.
1: Oh, I got him with a trip.
0: Yeah. This is so much. Everyone's on top. Of it. Even the doorman. It's like, yeah. Well, I mean, I, like, I think this was like an, a big national thing. It's a big deal that the Pope was coming at the time. They want everyone is on high alert to make sure everything's okay. Hey, get some popcorn. <laughs> <laughs> this is crazy. Before we started recording, I told Chris this is a very this going to be a very complicated <laughs> episode. I've got a lot of windows open with a lot of different information to pull from. So they, they're unable to arrest. Ram. They're unable to find and arrest Ramsay Uzef that night. He escapes. Were
1: they able to identify that it was the same dude?
0: Yes. Uh, they go through the apartment and, you know, they find some of his forged IDs and some of the you know the, mm. the other stuff he's done. And they realize that it's Ramzi Youssef. And they've been looking for him. I don't know if this name sounds familiar to you or to any of our listeners. It sounds familiar. Ramzi Youssef was responsible for the 1993 bombing of the World Trade Center. That's where I heard its name from. Right. So... Ever since then, the United States has been looking for him. That's also why the United States got involved. And I mentioned them earlier. The United States has been looking for Ramzi Youssef uh, because of that World Trade Center bombing from 1993, which I feel like many people forget because obviously something way worse happened eight years later there. But that explosion killed six people and injured over 1,000. And that was in February of 1993. So about two years before this. Wow. So about a month later, on February 7th, 1995, Agents of Pakistan's Inner Service Intelligence and special agents of the U.S. Diplomatic Security Service raided room 16 in the Sukhasa guest House in Islamabad, Pakistan, and captured Yusef before he could move to Peshawar. And during the raid, agents found Delta and United Airlines flight schedules and bomb components in children's toys. He was extradited back to the United States to face trial within the New York Supreme Court, uh, and he was given uh, a life sentence with an additional 240 years. And he still incarcerated at this point, actually, in the United States. What about the other people in the plot? Or was it just that guy? Oh, so this was, um, th- th- that was specifically about uh, Ramsey Youssef. Okay. So on September 5th, 1996, Youssef and two co-conspirators were convicted for their role in the Bojinka plot, which was the one ah. we were talking about. And they were sentenced by U.S. District Court Judge Kevin Duffy to life in prison without parole. And then a year after that, on November 12th, 1997, Youssef was found guilty of masterminding the 1993 World Trade Center bombing. Then on January 8th, 1998, Judge Duffy found Youssef guilty of plotting a seditious conspiracy to bomb the World Trade Center and sentenced Yusuf to life plus 240 years in prison for both bombings. So he's got a lot of life sentences. Yeah. He uh, recommended that Yousef's entire sentence be served in solitary confinement.
1: Oh, man.
0: Yeah, he's currently incarcerated at the um, Supermax... US federal penitentiary in Florence, Colorado. He shares a cell block that's actually commonly referred to as Bomber's Row oh. with Terry Nichols, Eric Rudolph, and before his transfer in late 2021, Ted Kaczynski. Did they get to like talk? No, I think they're all, like, you know, they're all in solitary confinement. I think they just all keep them. I think this is presumably, if I had to guess, like the most secure lockdown portion mm-hmm. of the prison. So they put them all in there. Yeah. So you can see now why I wanted to kind of talk about this one. It's not only... This one incident, it had security implications, you know, that we still deal with today when it comes to shoes and liquids, its security yeah, screenings.
1: Is, and this is just a crazy incident. This is just crazy.
0: Yeah. It ties into the 1993 World Trade Center bombing, which, like I said, I think gets overlooked quite a bit. It it, it deals with Al-Qaeda, which, you know, at the time maybe didn't pique anyone's interest, but, you know, years later, became a very yeah. big deal. Just absolutely far-ranging bombing terrorist plot. The flight deck and cabin crew members were commended by the president of the Philippines, Fidel Ramos, for their professional handling of a potentially disastrous situation. Uh You know, they all went their separate ways following the incident. Ed Reyes transferred to Cebu Pacific to work as an administrative check pilot, flight instructor, and DC-9 captain until his retirement in 2002. He served as board secretary and director of Airlink International Aviation School and worked as an aviation course professor. In the same institution until his death on February fourteenth, two thousand seven, from prostate cancer.
1: I guess I, I feel like this is like the end of the movie where they're like giving the updates.
0: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, and like, you see and- the, the picture of the real life person <laughs> yeah, next yeah, to the actor yeah. who
1: played them. Yeah, that's what I feel like is happening right now.
0: Yeah. First officer Jamie Herrera was later promoted to captain and continued to fly for Philippine Airlines until his retirement in two thousand eight. He passed away March twenty seventh, twenty twenty one, at the age of seventy three. Systems engineer Dexter Comendador also moved to Cebu Pacific in 1998 and served as a management pilot in that company. Then moved to Philippines Air Asia in 2011, where he served as COO and was later appointed as interim CEO in July 2016 and CEO in January 2017. He eventually retired in July 2019. Got a boss. Yeah, he uh, ran an airline after (laughs) all of that. But that's it. That's uh, Philippine Airlines flight 434. Really, man, I, I cannot... It's, I feel like it's impossible to overstate how far-reaching this particular incident was. It is. I
1: Yeah, because of all the, the safety stuff. And a lot of that stuff, though, didn't really start until after 9-11, though, right?
0: Yeah, because, um, you know... Yeah, I mean, really, I think the shoes coming off, if you remember, was after um, that attempted bombing by Richard Reed, where uh-huh. he tried to ignite one of his shoes. And I think even that was post-9-11. Yeah, it
1: was, but it might have been like, well, this is like a a realization that this is the shoes is a thing that people are a a weakness, an opportunity for people to sneak stuff on. So we need to do something about it. Right, right, right.
0: Yeah. I think maybe at at the time, you know, it was like, oh, we stopped it. Not a big deal. And I think as, you know, the years went on and you see repeated plots, it's like, okay, no, we need to do something to, Mm -hmm. to try to address this. Plus nowadays, you know, the, the screening Machines are a lot more thorough. You know, there's also those like body scanners that that's it's not just like a primitive metal detector. Uh it's The technology has come a lot further. At You know, at the time, I think the machines that did that were, you know, a lot slower and maybe more expensive. So it just, mm. you know, we had to kind of maybe wait for technology to catch up. But, you know, things like taking shoes off, I feel like that probably should have been addressed probably after this. Because yeah. uh, that, that would have been a, an unbelievable plot if if they hadn't been caught. If, you know... Can, I can't imagine if, you know, they hadn't made that mistake and, you know, caused smoke to come out of their apartment and, you know, if the Pope hadn't been visiting and the doorman hadn't called the fire department and the police. And- but they wanted to kill the Pope too, right? I mean, yeah. was
1: part of their, they were literally, yeah, part of the, can you, that's crazy. It's like, well, you know, there's all the added security, don't, you know, just want to be better safe, don't want any plots, you know, to kill the Pope, right? Ha ha ha. No, really though. No, yeah, like, for, for real. <laughs> yeah. It,
0: it, some, some people might be trying to do this. God. This is crazy. Yeah. What a movie. I I think it would be I think it would be really fascinating to to see that. But yeah, if you're um interested and you want to read any more about it, uh like I said it's it was called the Bojinka plot, B O J I N K A. You know, they were targeting we didn't we didn't even get into the full the full planning or the full things that they were planning to do you know I, I mentioned they were planning to assassinate pope john paul they were trying to take down uh, american airliners they also wanted to attack cia headquarters i mean there was this Holy was a very moly far-reaching plot i mean i guess
1: it's shown that like he would just keep doing it if he kept getting away right i mean because he'd already done yeah you, you know what i mean like it's not like he was a one and done kind of Terrorist,
0: right? He, yeah, You can tell he'd already done the World Trade Center yeah. uh, bombing. Was did this had this other plan? Um, you know, in fact, the plot to attack CIA headquarters was kind of kind of a premonition. You know, not, when they uncovered that, I feel like they should have maybe looked a little more into it. They were going to fly a small airplane filled with explosives and crash it into CIA headquarters. Was their plan? Oh, which you know was an idea that they kept around and did eventually use mm-hmm. later. And, you know, this was also, I think, maybe the genesis of the idea of what led to nine eleven as well. But yeah, read up on the Bojinka plot. It is, now, you know, knowing what we know now, it is eerie to read the things that they were planning and what eventually did end up happening. And I think, you know, as a result of that, I think that's why now threats are taken a lot more seriously. Yeah, what a turd. Yeah. All right, that's it. Again, check us out on social media at Black Box Down Pod, where you can see... Uh, I don't know what images I'll post. I'll see what I can. I, I can dig up. I think. I, I think I've seen some official like photos from inside the plane showing the damage that the bomb and, did.
1: And I know this is like I'd be interested in seeing some of the stuff like uh, the guy like a uh, mugshot or something.
0: Oh, okay, yeah. One thing
1: too that want to mention. Um, we had a uh, a fall. Fo- I guess a follow up. Did we talk about that? The follow up.
0: Oh yeah, we had a uh, a listener who. Uh, Speaks Portuguese, who is Brazilian, reach out and give us a follow up to an incident we covered with the Chapecones soccer team that we that was we did an episode, uh, several episodes ago about. And uh, since this uh, listener speaks Portuguese, <laughs> was is able to was able to translate a lot of uh, updates to the story that we were unaware of, and we were able to talk about that in our first class episode that we released uh, a couple of weeks ago as well, which you can listen to if you if you want to get. Episodes early, ad free, and special bonus episodes like that. Uh, you can either sign up in Apple Podcasts and Spotify or by going to blackboxdownpod.com.
1: Yeah. And that just directly supports the show. It's helpful. Um, if you're able to do it, thank you. Yeah. If not, we hope you enjoy every other episode. Also, thank you. <laughs> All right.
0: Well, we'll see you guys next week. Bye. Bye.